from the creator economy to the end of Bretton Woods and the origins of the metaverse. This is the UAE Tech Podcast Web3 edition. Tune in for cutting edge interviews on how blockchain is reshaping cyberspace, finance and culture from here in Dubai and cities around the world. Web two, web one has has made data sharing kind of a dirty word. You're absolutely right. The business model for web one and web two was based on advertising because there was no concept of micropayments. It wasn't possible. There's an interview with Mark Andreessen recently that where he talked about that and he said the the logical only way to monetize was advertising. And so that that is the business model of web one and to certain parts of web two. And with Web3, we finally have that ownership layer, the micropayments payments layer that is an adjunct and complementary to the internet. And so I think that while sharing personal data feels really dirty right now and it feels unsafe, it feels like you might be taken for a ride, there's a couple of major advantages with Web3. And number one, people know the data comes from you. And so one of the reasons why Web2 can kind of take all of our data without regard for our individual rights and preferences is because it's anonymized enough so that they they can kind of wash their hands of it and say, well, you know, we don't know where this data is coming from, or they just keep it within their walled garden so you never know what they're doing with the data. With Web3, you can have a provenance trail of where the data is coming from, from each individual person through their ETH address or something like that. And because of that, you can also program in kind of a, a, a splitting key where if revenue is gotten from, let's say, a billion people, everybody gets a portion of the revenue that when that data is used. Over the past decade, books such as Zuboff's Surveillance Capitalism or The More Recent Attention Economy by Thomas Bryan have outlined how big tech is out there to steal your data. Memes depicting Web2 users as digital serfs or descriptors such as walled gardens have risen in popularity as a way to communicate a perceived information asymmetry between extractive centralized platforms and billions of internet users. In the process, it seems like data has become a dirty word, but it doesn't necessarily need to be. A new data economy is emerging on the blockchain in which users can provide access to and possibly even derive profits from the data they control. But what would these new data markets look like? What industries will be the first to adopt? And will internet browser cookies one day be a thing of the past? This week, we're talking with Bruce Pond of Ocean Protocol on data as a new asset class. Today, we're talking with Bruce Pond, founder of Ocean Protocol. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us. Can you quickly introduce yourself? Tell us about the idea behind Ocean Protocol and how you got started. Yeah, sure. Um, I've been working in blockchain since 2013. Uh, Before that, I was building banks around the world for companies like Mercedes-Benz, Volkswagen, etc. And in 2013, I got the Bitcoin bug. And I saw that the technology could be used for something other than financial uses, which was data. And um, it came from the idea that um, I think that 
we as a, a planet have 8, 000, 8 billion people. And if we could give each of those 8 billion people a, a way to monetize their data, that would be kind of the, the asset for the 21st century that gives everybody kind of an playing field to get going. So that's uh, how Ocean was born out of this realization. Okay, that's kind of a big, big whole area to explore that. So two things. First, you said you were creating banks for Mercedes-Benz and other, other organizations. What does that mean? But secondly, why is data uh, such a big deal? Uh, why should people be able to have control and monetize their data? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, no, I, I, the building banks is pretty exciting. The, we would go into countries where the financial systems were a little bit less mature, think places like Russia, Eastern Europe, uh, yeah. parts of Asia, and we would, we would go in there from soup to nuts, beginning to the end, and help companies build banks so that they could give just regular banking services to normal people who want to get a car, dealers, uh, even the factory inventory. And, and you'd be able to use a bank, which is a little bit more capital efficient than uh, using your industrial balance sheet. And so that was our shtick for, for about 10 years. And um, in total, I did about 12 banks and my company has done about 40. Wow. Wow. I had no idea about that whole side of things. Fascinating. Uh, how did this lead to, to data then? And, and why is it that you think data is a core problem that um, the blockchain should be looking at? When I was building banks, it was clear to me that there were ways to scale up the impact and it was probably going to be digital. It was clear that with robots, AI automation, that it would be a, it, it's getting harder and harder in some ways for people to, I guess, earn money. Uh, we now have things like the gig economy, but there's a lot of lower paying jobs uh, and, and different ways where people are not able to get a leg up. But with the internet and with all the IoT devices, it was clear that if you could give people some sort of control and kind of agency over their own data using blockchain, so, so the blockchain kind of helps track where the data is coming from, then that could be kind of like owning your own land property or house. There's a, a really cool book, uh, I believe it's called Dead Capital, uh, or the, the Mystery of Capital. And it, it talks about how in many countries, as soon as people, as soon as there's land reform and the land registry reform, then there's an explosion of innovation in a country because people who may never have had titles to their land are now able to legally get loans, use it as a business location, or just even sell it onwards so they, they get their initial capital to do something else with their life. And the idea is whether or not you can turn data into property in the 21st century and and give it all those types of rights in a native digital world. And, and that's fundamentally the core of Ocean. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I know a lot of blockchain projects began by um, providing services to, to land registry organizations, both in the States and elsewhere. Um, with data, I want to play devil's advocate a little bit because data is kind of a dirty word for anyone that's grown up in Web2. You know, I saw this meme recently basically saying that if you use one of the big tech platforms, you're basically a digital surf, giving your data away. And if you're making a sense on the dollar for whatever you create and 
published to, to some of these big tech platforms, they're making $10 or $20 off your data and off your information. So there's this idea that the whole idea, that the whole concept of the data economy is kind of extractive and exploitative. And, and that that's been the hallmark of cyberspace or the internet for you know the past decade or two decades. Do you think that that's something that the blockchain can change and maybe even potentially reverse? Web two, web one has has made data sharing kind of a dirty word. You're absolutely right. The business model for web one and web two was based on advertising because there was no concept of micropayments. It wasn't possible. There's an interview with Mark Andreessen recently that where he talked about that, and he said the the logical only way to monetize was advertising, and so that that is the business model of Web one and to certain parts of Web two. And with Web3, we finally have that ownership layer, the micropayments payments layer that is a, an adjunct and complementary to the internet. And so I think that while sharing personal data feels really dirty right now and it feels unsafe, it feels like you might be taken for a ride, there's a couple of major advantages with Web3. And number one, people know the data comes from you. And so one of the reasons why Web2 can kind of take all of our data without regard for our individual rights and preferences is because it's anonymized enough so that they they can kind of wash their hands of it and say, well, you know, we don't know where this data is coming from, or they just keep it within their walled garden so you never know what they're doing with the data. With Web3, you can have a provenance trail of where the data is coming from, from each individual person through their ETH address or something like that. And because of that, you can also program in kind of a, a, a splitting key where if revenue is gotten from, let's say, a billion people, everybody gets a portion of the revenue that when that data is used. Obviously, if it's a billion people, it's not going to be that much. But Web3 allows for this to happen. And I think that that changes the relation between people and their data from being extractive to some sort of asset that yeah. they could conceivably uh, monetize in the future if they wanted to. Super cool. All right. So let's unpack that a little bit because I saw the interview with Mark uh, Andressen too, and I thought it was really interesting. Um, the two questions there. One, if I, if I can use micropayments um, and I can suddenly have that solution and, you know, no one's involved, uh, the banks can't get involved, but potentially, you know, tax aside, it's difficult for governments to interfere with that process. If I can suddenly integrate my work with micropayments, then why do I need data? And second question is, you know, I think everything you said makes sense. Is it possible to scale companies so that, you know, data can be monetized at significant, at sufficient scale to actually make money out of it for individuals and companies? Yeah. So the, with Web3, the ability for us to scale, it's a coordination problem, right? Global coordination at the lowest possible cost makes, makes, sorry, did you get me? Yeah, yeah, no, I get you completely, yeah. I mean, it is a kind of global, it, it, I understand what you're trying to say, yeah. Yeah, so um, the, the ability to globally coordinate millions and potentially billions of people using Web3 allows us to kind of go have an anti-COASA uh, mm. 
set up. And Quasi's theorem is just, you know, the, the size of the organization grows as big as it takes because the economy of scale uh, uh, makes it so that everything's cheaper within the organization. Right. And, and it's fundamentally a coordination problem. And so if you are able to use a token, digital token, that is crypto, where there's no margin, it's, it's very little cost, it's highly scalable, then you can run campaigns, challenges, competitions, and organizations where you have a very high-level mission for the overall community, and then the people coordinate independently to add value and contribute what they can. Just kind of like what happens in the Bitcoin community, by the mm. way. There, there is no leader there, but yet mm. they are very rapid. And they they don't actually coordinate. Sometimes they coordinate at conferences, but it's not really a formalized thing. But you have probably 100,000 people who are going out to their friends and family, government, regulatory agencies, exchanges, uh, and, and just trying to find ways where they can add value and be missionaries for this type of thing. And I think that this, uh, Balaji Srinivasan talks a lot about this with his book, The Network State, where you can create... Yeah. A, a global community, a global, a nation that is purely digital. And I believe that the time is right for a digital nation. And whether or not, now that we have micropayments, do we need, do we need Web3 or why do we need data for Web, uh, for if we have digital payments? I think that Web3 is crypto plus incentives for a specific mission, those three things. Um, it's the cryptocurrency, which is the globally scalable technology. It's the incentives, which is the tokens that can align. And then you have the mission that brings people together. And you could put this across uh, gaming, artwork, governance, data. There's a whole bunch of things. Supply chain. Uh, there's ways that you can start creating stuff where we have done some of the stuff in Web2 uh, Internet. But I think the best example was something like Constitution DAO, with, where yeah. within one week, they amassed, I believe, over $20 million to try to buy a physical copy of the Constitution. It was, you know, of course, somebody posted the, the link to get it going. Um, but the ability to collect this funding so quickly and then try to make something of it, that would not have been possible uh, even five years ago, obviously. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's an amazing answer. And you're right. I mean, we're really talking about a completely new organizational structure that doesn't really bear you know, it's, it's just completely different to, to, to the existing systems that we have and the way it's organized and the way people use it. And I like that Constitution DAO example. Um, I mean, they had issues in the community with, you know, whales and, and, and you know, um, big spenders possibly having more say over the, the Constitution than others. But those seem to be like governance issues, you know. And I totally get the point that if you're a supply chain company, and you're built on the blockchain, of course, data is going to be a really important um, asset for you. Um, so that might be a good segue into Ocean Protocol. I think our listeners probably understand that the problem that you're trying to solve and what you're trying to achieve. How does Ocean Protocol fit into all of this? What is Ocean Protocol um, trying to solve specifically? We're looking at, well, let me take a back step. So since we've been around since 2013, we've seen probably 20 or 30 different projects attempt to solve some aspect of data sharing. Many of them took a, a very vertical specific view, kind of like the lean startup uh, methodology where you take one very narrow use case and then you try to go out from there. 
the challenge with that, and most of these project have, projects haven't been able to achieve their objectives, and, and our thinking was opposite to that, in that there wasn't enough infrastructure and a generalized way of thinking. So just as an example, without um, kind of a messaging protocol or an email protocol uh, or even security protocols, we would never have been able to have the internet that we have today. And those were things that were built that were horizontally scalable and hor horizontally distributable to every browser uh, uh, across every computer in order to make it so that the pipes of the internet worked. You would not have been able to build an email client without these tools before they were made. And so between 2013 and now, so nine years, we saw a lot of projects that would have had to create the entire stack from the core infrastructure to middleware to uh, additional tooling and components, and then succeed as well in terms of the user experience and get distribution and, and get a global community of millions around a project to succeed. That's just too heavy of a list. We, we, we didn't think that was realistic to get a billion people to follow you along this entire path of deep tech to middle tech to kind of front end all the way to uh, being able to actually monetize something. And so from 2013 until now, we've worked on various aspects of core technology, many of which we've kind of re-gifted re and contributed back to the community on how do you design tokens? How do you design decentralized storage? Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff we did with wallets and everything like that. And Ocean Protocol is uh, a data sharing protocol. It's a generalized knowledge uh, exchange kind of protocol that allows for any type of data, intellectual property, music, books, uh, databases, all that sort of stuff to be shared and consumed by something like algorithms, analytics, and reports. And so you have these two things where there's a common language that allows now data sharing to be hap to happen. And that's why Ocean is somewhat different is because we looked at it saying, we're not going to take the lean startup approach here because you you need the tools and language to make this happen. And since since we started, now we have things like wallets, we have things like MetaMask, uh, exchanges, DEXs, uh, we even have things like DAOs, and more knowledge in the space so that we don't have to do the entire heavy lift. But we focused on the main thing, which is a set of smart contracts that helps to orchestrate kind of a buyer and a seller, along with potentially some curators and stakers on top of that to make the nascent skeleton of a data economy. Yeah, so we had a, an episode with a guy called Anthem Hayek, uh, and the episode was entitled The Beauty of Protocol. And he basically made the same case for protocol um, as you're making and said, you know, even on this call we're doing right now, there's a dozen protocols that you're not even aware of running in the background, making this call possible. Um, and in Web3, those protocols can be can be massively important and massively powerful. And it's a big opportunity to start building those out. Um, but specifically for, for Ocean Protocol, I know um, you guys have been working on things called data wallets and data marketplaces. Can you just explain those two ideas for our audience? So it's, um, it's a little bit squamorphic, let's say. So, of course, Apple... Johnny, I have talked about this concept of squamorphism where when he was designing the phone, you wanted a calculator to look like a calculator in the in the physical world or a notepad, yeah. you know, all that sort of stuff. And so so we know that so we use things like data wallets and data marketplaces, but we know that the interaction is going to be different. But we use this concept of a data marketplace 
just as a representation where you, you have a buyer and a seller, and then you might have some intermediaries, uh, service providers like curators, legal, arbitrage, uh, or sorry, insurance, um, and arbiters in the middle. And that's typically a marketplace. How it actually looks in the Web3 world, we left it completely open. But what we had is this concept of Ocean being at the center of that handshake with the ability for additional services on top. And that that's a marketplace. And so we built something that I would consider scoimorphic, which is a traditional type of Web2 marketplace on top of our protocol, just so that people could have a feel for it. In the meantime, what we've had is about 10 different projects try different ways of building marketplaces on top of Ocean, like mobile wallets, uh, um, some sort of staking protocols where, where data can be consumed and such like that. Um, and I think that because we're adding in the monetization layer, a data marketplace in the future does not have to look like what you would traditionally conceive of a marketplace today. So it's not necessarily going to look like Amazon where you go, you look for an algorithm, uh, you say, oh, this looks great. You browse it, you look at the reviews, and then you consume it. I don't think it's going to look like that. But what we've done is we've put together something that does look like that and said, okay, here's a starting point. Go ahead and experiment and try find the right answer where it's no longer squamorphic but native for data sharing. And that could be something where it's completely machine readable only. So you actually don't have a UX. You just have uh, some sort of uh, queries, some search results uh, that are processed in a machine. And then that machine just says, okay, consume these data sets, apply these algorithms. Uh, and, and, and then you have kind of this daisy chain stringing of different logic pieces in script. And, and that's the, you know, that, that's how somebody's going to interact with Ocean. We don't know how this is going to work, but we have already probably a dozen different ways where people are trying to use Ocean at the core of those smart contracts to try out what a data economy is going to look like in the future. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I like that scoimorphic, the idea that people have to get used to it, get used to the concept, and it might have to look like what they're used to before. But in the future, this could actually be automated or just be ran between different machines or AIs. Um, I have a question for you about the data itself. Um, and this is something I think we've mentioned now and again on, on the podcast in the past. So in Web2, we all know what kind of data is useful for Facebook or Amazon and the kind of data that they want to mine. Um, in these new systems, in Web3, what are the kind of data sets that you've been looking at and that you think could be valuable or interesting in the future? Are they big, mass-scale data sets for billions of people who are using platforms or ecosystems? Are they B2B data sets within an industry, be it banking or supply chain? Or are they things like, you know, user, you know, the virtual assets someone has in a video game? I'm just, you know, brainstorming random data sets here that could arise in the future. What, what is the kind of data that you think might become more valuable in the future um, compared to the data that seems to be, you know, attractive today? Right. So today, the data that is the most valuable is financial data that you can use for trading. Think Wall Street, hedge funds, mutual funds. Second type is advertising data. So your typical cookies, uh, Google uh, AdSense, all that kind of stuff, Facebook. 
and then finally retail data that helps people to uh, customize preference or understand preferences to customize offers. Those are th that's essentially the three things that's being sold for the most part has the highest value and stuff like that. So, <coughs> so how does Web three change this? I think that because we are now going to monetize help help people monetize their data. I think the financial aspect will always be there, and but it can go in different flavors because it's a consent in opt-in system because it's your data and now, now you kind of control it. There's going to be a, a, rise, a rise of data unions where some DAO is going to say, okay, give me all your driving data. Give me all your health data. Give me all your nutrition data. Uh. And I'll create, I'll create a data union and then I'll act as your marketing distribution channel. But instead of taking 70%, I'll, I'll take 20%. So I think mm -hmm. that's a trillion dollar idea. And then that can be in multiple areas. Uh, generally, you're going to say, uh, because this is opt-in and you're going to have somebody who's going to manage that for you, uh, and you can also probably indicate your preferences, that data is ripe for all the things where we can't ethically use it today. So medical research, uh, marketing, financial, there's a whole bunch of areas where it's gauche to use that data now. And if you get caught, you, the, that's a huge reputational risk. And when you have a data union where you have actually opted in in exchange for some sort of economic benefit that, that you agree to, whether it's fair or not, that, that's not the, the question. It's just you've agreed to this. Then all of the things where uh, we are straying from and, and scared to go down can, can happen because it's actually a fair or at least a transparent economic model. Today, there's so many stories you hear about somebody's um, – an internet site saying, give me access to your data and you'll, you can get a coupon for a, a cookie or a bag of chips or something like that. <laughs> and, and it's just such a bad deal. Whereas um, uh, in the future, you're, you're going to be able to not only opt in and sell your data, but you also see it when it gets consumed because the blockchain is clear in terms of who's consuming it and how they're consuming it. And those are that's actually kind of the core principle of Ocean is that when you give power back to people or the data owners, and then you give them the transparency tools to make, to understand what's happening. You're pushing that control back into the hands of people, and then you completely sidestep the the aims of GDPR. You are uh, acceding to the needs of the consumers, but you're also giving everybody on Earth who who participates a chance for essentially UBI. Um, and just like YouTube and podcasting has 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 made it so that millions of creators can now talk about things that they love or they're they're um, interested in, and then they, they get a fan group, they get Patreons and all that sort of stuff where they monetize their interests, you can have people monetizing their data in multiple ways. And so if we can give people choices like this all over the world, as long as they have a computer and, and internet connection, I think that that has to be a good thing. Will it be abused? Probably. Uh, but the I think that the number of people that we can help or give the chance for them to find a way to help themselves is absolutely immense. Yeah, it's a really compelling use case. Um, I want to go on a quick tangent because you mentioned Bajalis and, and the network state earlier, and you gave these, you know, really succinct three versions of the kind of data that's being used in in Web two. I think it was financial, retail, and advertising. But I want to ask about a fourth type of data, which has been really growing very competitively and aggressively, and that is the kind of data that governments want to collect on citizens, be it India or the United Kingdom uh, or China or many other countries. Um, 
for example, I know um, with AI uh, in, in my country, medical data through the NHS has become something that the government is, is very interested in. I know that America is worried that China has a big advantage in AI because it has access to the data sets of all the private corporations in the country. So we have this new phenomenon emerging where um, the most powerful institutions, governments are increasingly very interested in having access to our data and in refining AI um, programs to, to you know, package and understand and segment this data. The blockchain is open. You know, the blockchain, as you said, is transparent. So how will government fit into all of this if governments are already competing for our data, not just financial institutions or corporations? How does something like Ocean Protocol fit into that? Because do you think governments will, e you know, easily allow a lot of, you know, the vast data that's currently being produced to be disappeared and kind of hidden behind the blockchain? So it's a bit of a tangent, but and, and it's a bit of a general question. But what? Do, how do you see kind of developments in that space? So governments have a monopoly on violence. That that means that you know if when you're in a physical meat space in a specific geography, the government has writes the rules. So they don't really have to compete for your data. If they say, I want your data or else you go to jail or worse, then you accede to it. That, that's just the nature of it. And I think that the, the best governments will use things like blockchain to collect the data and if they do share and distribute it or use it in different manners, that they will be transparent with those whose data they're using. Uh, you can have probably uh, other types of governments who have a less liberal view and they use the data at will to create a new vision of minority report, which is wholly possible within the next five years. And so along that spectrum, governments truly have the full power as well as authority to do whatever they want with your data and the best ones will help turn it into an economic resource of the citizens while respecting the citizens' rights and their wishes. Uh, the worst ones will just do whatever they want to do. And um, yeah, let's see what happens. Yeah, it could go both ways. Um, I wanted to quickly ask, are there any kind of industry verticals that you're really excited about for, for Ocean Protocol, particularly use cases that you think, yeah, this makes sense to everyone? I think... Every vertical makes sense, but where would we focus on? I think the answer is DeFi data because it is the intersection of people who are Web3 crypto native and the, the ones who would be using AI and data to, to maybe get a leg up in terms of trading on NFTs, games, um, crypto trading, DeFi, MEV, like, like doing front running on, on um, DEXs and stuff like that. All of this stuff requires data, and that's where we are seeing a lot of movement with uh, things like uh, Dune Analytics, Mazari, a whole bunch of different companies are now arising in the Web3 data space. And so if Ocean can act as some sort of intermediary to help uh, traders and data scientists to understand what's happening in the market so they can make money, I think that that is probably the most compelling use case because it, it aligns all the incentives. Yeah, that makes sense. It, and it, it links back 
we've done um, quite a few episodes now on on fintech. And at one point we did one with the DIFC in, in Dubai. I'm not sure if you're aware of them, um, but they're, they're a very big uh, player alongside uh, ADGM in, uh, in Abu Dhabi. And uh, they were saying, you know, what's really interesting is that at some point the data sets are moving so fast and becoming so complicated that we actually need machines to be able to read them before a human can, can you know, review what's happening. And I thought that was really interesting, the idea of kind of, um, you know, machine regulation and AI regulation um, over certain data sets, um, how that's going to pour in, into Web3, I don't know. Um, but it does seem like what is emerging is, is a new kind of data economy that is a little bit more fair than the one that, that we have uh, today. Do you think that's a fair comment to make? I mean, that's what we're working towards. You, you, any invention, and, and, and any invention can be used for, for you know, nefarious purposes. Uh, I mean, we hope that we're contributing to the global kind of emergence of a data economy, and we hope that we're a positive uh, influence on this. But of course, every technology has has kind of a good side and a bad side, and and uh, if we as a global community can bias towards giving more people more autonomy and more control. That's a good thing. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. I mean, and what is next for you guys? I know you've got something about a version four launch. Um, you know, what's the plan there? How's that relevant to your mission? What are you excited about? So um, <clears throat> we just released Ocean V4, and that has a whole bunch of new things called, uh, for instance, things like data NFTs. Um, and what that is, is that's like the master rights on a piece of intellectual property. Think of the master rights on a song or the master rights on a book. And when you have that, what you're able to do then is fractionalize ownership, securitize it. So let's say you, the, give me a singer, Taylor Swift, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> she comes out. Can't she, believe she comes you went out with, Taylor. Man. I, you know. Don't shoot me. No, I'm a so, big Tay-Tay by myself, but you know, oh, yeah. that's between me and you. <laughs> 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 yeah so so you know what let's say she came comes out with a, a new song and she's obviously very fan oriented she's 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 really in touch with the fan group and she says you know what i'm going to fractionalize this into a million different pieces here's the the master data nft here's a million pieces i'm going to keep 40 percent, but i'm going to sell 60 percent, and it's going to go on an auction just like you would have have had previously in an ico platform and people buy it and it just, it's just wild. And so some people are buying just because they're rabid Taylor Swift fans. Other ones are looking at it from a securitization perspective or a cash flow perspective. And then what Taylor, Taylor's kind of promise is whatever money I make on this minus fees goes back to the community. And it's pretty simple. You own the token, you get that percentage of it. And that's an, you get that for eternity, like for the next 50 years or whoever who holds it on your behalf. Yeah. And so... Over 50 years, uh, uh, proceeds accrue into somebody's wallet. And if they're a huge fan, not only can they support Taylor, but they own a piece of it and they're part of something bigger. And you could have this with pretty much any piece of digital property and such like that. And we think that that is a way for you to crowdsource knowledge. Imagine if Wikipedia had been crowdsourced in this manner, where you had a million wiki, wiki tokens and uh, different community members, whether it's speculative or a contribution or just mission-based buys that token and 
uh, and then there's kind of a revenue stream on top of it where everybody's contribution, whenever somebody use, uh, uses Wikipedia, goes back to those members. I think that that is one very obvious way where data NFTs could be used uh, and Web3 technology where you can scale globally and you do not need to know the geography, the gender, the age. Uh, you just need to be holding tokens and contributing to the community. Yeah, it's a good, it's a really good example. Um, I actually heard, uh, I read about, ironically enough, uh, another Tay-Tay case study that's kind of interesting, which was the, it was a scenario where let's say you have um, a thousand fans and they're all part of a, a musician's DAO or, you know, um, a Web3 platform. And um, 950 of those fans are all, you know, multimillionaires and they can afford to go to any event anywhere in the world and be in the best box. And then you've kind of got 50 fans that have been going to watch Taylor or whoever since they're 12 years old, you know? So maybe they've been going 10 years and they're just super loyal. You know, maybe they help promote in all sorts of ways. And if you're the musician, you want a way to kind of give those really loyal fans that have been with you from the beginning as much support or more support than the ones who've just, you know, turned up because you've broken through or, you know, you've suddenly become famous. And um, without sharing too much information, you know, a good data, uh, good data insights allows you to do that. And through a tokenized economy, you can reward certain fans for certain types of behavior in a granular way, which is kind of impossible in Web2. Um, and I guess one of the points of that is I was never really aware of it, but I suppose data plays a role in being able to evaluate, you know, who your fans are, uh, how loyal they are, and what kind of rewards to give them. Yeah, I think I think that we're we're heading into a new world where we will have analytics at our fingertips that are immutable based on the blockchain, and these analytics can be used for everything, improving your game in the gaming system. Uh, seeing who's the most loyal to your community and the values, um, all these different things are are going to be more possible. And that's why I'm so bullish on analytics and algorithms uh, somehow tapping into blockchain and and then using various handshakes, consent models, privacy-preserving tech to make all that data available in some way so that more people can access it. Because we're, we're heading to such a technocratic world and a numbers world where geeks can kind of find alpha, find out where things are happening by looking at data. Um, I think everybody can agree. We've gone to a world, uh, particularly in the mainstream media and everything, where a lot of it's purely opinion, and there's a bunch of talking heads and a whole bunch of voices. And to separate signal from the noise, it's in the data. And, and that's why I'm so bullish on something like Ocean, because I think it's a fundamental piece of the future. Yeah, it seems to be that way. So what, what is next for you guys? But before we uh, finish up today, what is on the horizon? What are you most excited about coming over the next six to 12 months? Perfect. Well, we've been working on this protocol now for five years since we've started doing kind of the ICO and such like that. And the, the first five years is essentially building out the core technology. We've got four major releases. And so now it's all about adoption. It's about saying, okay, the exactly what I talked to you about, the whole mission and vision and what we've built, and to look at particularly DeFi traders, crypto, and see where the data needs are, and to then tailor the projects so that we can get maximum usage. Uh, we're also really 
excited about things like data farming, where people are going to be incentivized and rewarded for sharing data as well as consuming data, and VE Ocean, which is a very safe staking platform that allows curators to come look for good data, and if they find it, they can grow with that data set and earn rewards, as well as some of the transaction fees, just like what we talked about earlier with the, the, the fan tokens or what have you. And, and so we're trying to build in all these different incentives into Ocean so that the, the data economy is inclusive, it's accessible, and um, people can really benefit. We're not going to get rid of inequality. I, I think that's unrealistic. There's going to always be, uh, you know, uh, people with more and people with less. But the principle is equal access. And if people really are hungry to learn and want to participate, that they can participate without barriers. Uh, and so I think that it's not just Ocean, but it's the entire Web3 space that this is the kind of our highest ideal. Uh, Bruce Punt, thanks so much for joining the UAE Tech Podcast today. Great. Thank you. Pleasure being here. Sponsor information. The UAE Tech Podcast is distributed by Alboaba Business free of charge. To sponsor a single episode or a series of themed episodes, please contact our editorial team or download a sponsorship press pack. Sponsors receive an article on Alboaba Business, syndication distribution on Alboaba Syndicate, email direct marketing across the region, and brand inclusion across all podcast marketing design, audio, and video formats. Alboaba is not a PR company, and we do retain editorial discretion and quality control as an independent publisher. Companies looking to support a dialogue on technological transformation in the UAE are encouraged to contact our team.